As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The United Kingdom and the rest of Europe has not been having a good year. A war on their doorstep, concerns about energy supplies, combined with an inflationary hangover from COVID stimulus measures, have caused significant turmoil in these economies. On an individual level, citizens are facing a cost-of-living crisis as supply chains are still faltering and interest rate increases designed to keep inflation at bay are increasing mortgage repayments by as much as double what they were at the height of the pandemic. Even before these complications, the UK was in a particularly vulnerable position, as it was reshaping its economy post-Brexit to be less reliant on Europe and more open to global trade with other countries, a plan that may backfire spectacularly as its currency plunges in value compared to the world's reserve and its largest potential new trading partner. The story on the other side of the English Channel is not much better either, because just as Britain lost the EU, the EU lost Britain which was the second largest economy in the Union and a very important supplier of goods and expertise that could alleviate the problems both economies have been facing. These recent developments happened on top of an already sluggish European economy, which had seen no real growth overall since 2008 when it was hit by the GFC and later the Eurozone crisis kicked off by Greece. Then of course there were the controversial tax measures taken by the new UK government which were theoretically meant to combat inflation and the cost of living problems that come with it. But as any high school level economics students would have been able to tell you, they were about as effective at putting out the inflationary bonfire as a bucket of gasoline. So could this be the start of the next Eurozone crisis that will stagnate the continent for another decade? Or is this simply the symptoms of countries recovering from one of the most turbulent economic times in the past several decades? Well, to properly answer these questions, we must as always understand a few important things. So why is the economy of Europe and the UK suddenly on the brink of collapse? How could these economies productively recover from these problems? And what does their future look like if they can't? Once we have done all of this, we can put the United Kingdom on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard. The British pound is down around 30% from the beginning of this year when compared to the US dollar. This is of course setting off alarm bells for a lot of people because the pound has typically been more valuable than the dollar. But I think it's important to address these concerns and look at why this might not be as bad as people are making it seem. We have seen before that currency values alone don't really mean anything by themselves. The Japanese yen is worth less than a hundredth of a US dollar, but that doesn't mean that Japan is a failed state. And the Kuwaiti dinar is worth more than three times as much as a US dollar, and that doesn't mean that Kuwait is an economic superpower. The British pound has been slipping in value for decades, mostly because inflation in the UK has been consistently higher than inflation in the US. People earn lower nominal salaries in the UK and things have lower nominal prices, but when converted to US dollars, they have stayed more or less in line with each other. Sometimes this can actually be a good thing. Having a currency close to parity with US dollars makes trade and tourism easier because people don't have to do mental maths for all of their spending. Another reason for the pound's slow downfall is that less institutions are holding on to them as a store of value. As the US dollar, the yen, and most recently the euro and yuan have grown in importance because they are the currencies used in bigger global economies than the UK. If a currency is held as a reserve asset by central banks, governments, and large financial institutions, its value will be greater than what it can be used for purely as an exchange mechanism within an economy. As these institutions stopped relying on pounds, the currency has been traded in foreign exchange markets and supply and demand did everything else. 
Another important factor is that a lot of investors have been rattled by the prospect of a recession caused by hangovers from COVID lockdowns, record high inflation and interest rate rises by most central banks to combat that inflation. If investors fear a downturn, they will sell off their assets and get as much liquidity as they can to be ready to buy up more assets when they feel the markets have hit rock bottom. The best type of currency to keep in order to make future investments is American dollars because America just has the biggest investment markets in the world. The pound has fallen significantly against the dollar before, most recently in 2008 at the outset of the global financial crisis for pretty much the same reasons. It's just not as widely remembered because there were bigger problems in the world at the time. Perhaps the easiest way to see that this fall in value isn't necessarily due to a weakness in the British economy, but rather a relative strength in the American economy, is to realise that most major currencies have fallen relative to the US dollar by a significant amount this year. One of the advantages of having a free-floating currency is that it acts like a global economic shock absorber. A lower pound in euro makes it cheaper, especially for Americans to go on holiday in Europe or to buy British exports or even make investments in these economies all of which will help soften the blow the economies are receiving at the moment. One of the big problems with the original Eurozone crisis was that Greece, Italy and Portugal had debt problems but they used the Euro, which meant that strong economic nations, particularly Germany and France, kept the value of their currency up and stopped this natural economic airbag from deploying. But that doesn't mean that this couldn't become the next Eurozone crisis. Even though the fall in the value of the euro and British pound is easy to explain and even has some beneficial side effects, it's still not a great sign of the overall health in these economies. The UK in particular is facing a lot of the same problems that we explored in our Brexit video last year, only now they have all become worse. The long-term shape of Brexit is still unclear. The country is still recovering from the pandemic and consumers as well as investors are on average going to avoid making major purchases until they have a clearer vision of what to expect in the future. That's right, consumers and investors. And that's where today's video sponsor, Masterworks, comes in. Because it's been a long losing battle to recoup inflation and stock market losses, even through the most tried and true strategies. In fact, Goldman Sachs reports that the classic 60-40 portfolio of stocks and bonds, the go-to investment method for decades, has lost around 20% this year. No wonder when the market is so volatile that 99% of stocks lost value in a single day last month. As a result, Goldman says portfolios need to be fixed and rebalanced before it's too late. They say the ideal allocation for stocks has shrunk from 60% to around 45%. So what do they recommend you do with that difference in order to salvage your stolen returns? Invest in real assets like fine art. Goldman says fine art can protect your purchasing power in conditions like these, and data from Morgan Stanley backs this point up. They report the average piece is selling for 26% more at auction compared to this time last year. That's through the turbulence of the first half of 2022 when the S&P 500 lost 20.6%, over $9 trillion. The difference is astounding and really exciting for investors looking to recoup some historic losses. So how do you invest in art yourself without spending millions? With Masterworks. Masterworks lets you invest in multi-million dollar works of art from legendary artists like Picasso, Basquiat and Banksy. These are not NFTs. This contemporary art has outpaced the S&P 500 by 131% for the past 26 years, even during the roaring bull market of the last decade. That's how Masterworks has managed to deliver returns even in a year fraught with disaster, like an exit for a 21.5% net return just three weeks ago at the start of October. That means if you had put in 15k, you'd walk away with over $18,000. 
As a result of this standout performance, Masterworks has had to acquire and release more art onto their platform to meet demand, and there is a waitlist to join their 500,000 other members. But you can skip it by clicking the link in the description. There are also, of course, some new problems. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has further increased fears about what the economic future of Europe and the UK will look like. As a response to its invasion, Russia has had a series of economic sanctions placed on it which were designed to reduce its ability to fight in a sustained war and to hurt its domestic economy so pressure would grow to end the invasion. But the economic problems in the UK and Europe are starting to make it look like these sanctions are backfiring and people are starting to question if perhaps Europe needed Russia more than Russia needed Europe. Economic sanctions are sort of like the geopolitical equivalent of radiation therapy. Restricting trade and currency flows hurts all economies, but it's done in the hope of hurting the economy which is the target of the sanctions more than the economies imposing them. And that's certainly what's happening here. Russia is hurting from these sanctions much more than any other economy. We just don't see it as directly because the country is effectively cut off from the outside world and what media is allowed to operate in the country is effectively just state mouthpieces. But Russia kind of deserves these problems and it doesn't make local economic hardships any less real. The UK specifically had a lot of very high-end financial service industries built around working with wealthy individuals from Russia. London was always seen as a safe place for Russians to keep their money, which is why the city is full of multi-million dollar townhouses owned by Russian oligarchs. These industries were arguably a net negative for society in the long term, but for the economy right now, there are hundreds of businesses and countless workers who were directly dependent on Russian money that is no longer coming into the country. Of course, this issue is not nearly as important or easy to sympathise with as the impacts being felt by regular UK citizens. Energy and food prices have been where Europe and the UK have felt this pain the most, and these are essential markets for everybody. Price inflation in consumer markets disproportionately impacts lower income households because food and energy takes up a larger portion of their budgets. It's understandable then that the British government wanted to offer assistance to these households to help get them through this difficult time, but the way they did it was a complete failure of basic economics. The new British Prime Minister stepped into office at a difficult time, and the first point of business was assisting households dealing with record high inflation. This is a uniquely tough problem for governments to deal with because inflation is either caused by having too much demand in an economy, not enough supply of goods and services, or some combination of both, which means that people have to compete with one another for limited supplies, which drives up prices. Governments and central banks really only have direct control over the demand side of this equation. In advanced economies like the UK and every country in Europe, the vast majority of services and virtually all goods are provided by the private sector. The government can't really tell a company to make more stuff and make it cheaper because most businesses are trying to operate in a way to maximise their profits, which normally means making as much stuff as they can with the resources that they have access to in order to sell to anybody in the economy with the means and desire to purchase their product. In plain English, they are already trying their best to do exactly that. The government could give these companies money to expand their operations, but that's a slow process. It can take years to build facilities and train staff to increase output. It also raises some questions about what companies get this money and what companies don't. Does the government want this money paid back? And what happens if the new facilities start producing goods after supply has naturally sorted itself out? It's possible, but it's very messy. Normally the most that governments do to influence output is changing business restrictions and increasing skilled migration. But really, most of the economic tools at their disposal are focused on demand. 
This is a problem for the UK because the correct way for the government to deal with high inflation in an economy is to reduce spending and increase taxes. This reduces the amount of take-home pay for the average worker, which means that the economy as a whole has less purchasing power, so total demand falls and businesses are forced to reduce their prices in order to attract customers. This is a difficult and politically unpopular stance for a government to take, even when an economy is doing really well. But it is much harder to do when an economy is on the brink of a recession and enacting this contractionary fiscal policy would push it over the edge. Now, as you're probably aware, the British government instead tried to do the exact opposite. It rolled out a plan to reduce taxation while simultaneously offering subsidies to combat the cost of living crisis. Now, normally I try to avoid passing judgement on politically motivated economic decisions. There is an argument that reducing taxes will increase people's take-home pay, which will help them deal with the cost of living crisis the country has been experiencing. But it's a bad argument. Increasing household incomes through tax cuts will only exacerbate price rises because now there are more pounds competing for the same amount of stuff. What's worse is that tax cuts disproportionately benefit higher income earners because they are the ones that pay higher rates of tax, but they're not the ones that are struggling with higher food and energy prices. Any economist would be able to tell policymakers this. It's high school level economics, which means that the government was either so mismanaged that they didn't even bother to ask, or they knew and they didn't care because tax cuts were something that they thought would be politically popular. Another confounding move by the government was the decision to introduce a strict price cap on household energy supplies. We will of course explore the economics behind why this doesn't work, but before that, I think it's important to apply some common sense thinking to show that this isn't a good idea. The UK is facing high inflation, particularly with rising energy costs, and the government's solution was to outlaw these energy costs. If this could work, then why wouldn't they just outlaw price increases in all sectors? It's because it doesn't work, at least not without major side effects. If a business is not able to charge the market rate for an item, they will naturally reduce the amount of that item that they are making. If the mandated maximum price is unprofitable, they won't produce any of that item at all. Energy supplies buy bundles of energy from producers who still need to buy expensive natural gas or oil to make their electricity. Renewables can help, but it can't provide all of the energy that is demanded, especially at these artificially reduced prices. Normally this results in a product shortage and a black market for goods that's more expensive than if the market was left alone, but it's very hard to sell black market electricity. Unless carefully monitored, the government is likely going to need to directly subsidise this price cap by paying suppliers the money that they need to keep producing electricity, so effectively this has just become another stimulus measure. The waning confidence that international organisations had in the UK was shattered by these policy announcements, and the common consensus amongst high-profile economists was that this was the kind of policy making you would expect from an undeveloped economy with unstable leadership. Stability and confidence is crucial to the long-term prosperity of any economy, especially one that is dealing with economic hardships. If people don't have confidence in an economy's leadership, they are going to be less likely to want to invest in that economy, less likely to set up trade relationships. Citizens are going to be less likely to want to start careers and buy homes and create value in an economy that could collapse at any time due to poor management. If you have been paying attention to this story, you are likely aware that two weeks ago, the Bank of England, the UK's central bank, had to step in to save the market for British government bonds. The market was in freefall because the central bank, the government and British pension funds were all trying to sell government bonds in the open market at the same time. The government was trying to sell bonds to raise money to help offset its tax cuts and other stimulus efforts. The central bank was trying to sell bonds to get as much money out of circulation as it could to reduce inflation, and pension funds were trying to sell bonds to get cash to cover investment loans that they had taken out. If everybody is selling something and nobody is buying it, the price falls. 
And if the price of British government bonds falls, it simultaneously makes it more expensive for the British government to borrow money and makes it look like the country is failing. The Bank of England eventually had to reverse course and start buying these bonds to avoid an outright collapse in this market. General news coverage has made the British central bank kind of sound like a hero riding in at the last second to save the economy from certain collapse. But that's just their job. They are first and foremost the lender of last resort to stop the economy from getting itself into too much trouble. So well done Bank of England, you did your job. But the fact that it needed to pull the parachute on what was typically thought of as an incredibly stable advanced economy is making a lot of people very concerned. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The country is, for now at least, still in a stronger position than Greece was in 2011. But if trust in an economy evaporates, that position can change very quickly. Nobody can predict the future, least of all economists. But when we are talking about the possibility of another Eurozone crisis, I think it's really important to remember that a lot of these economies haven't yet recovered from the original Eurozone crisis. So another period of major economic turbulence is very likely to hold back growth for the foreseeable future. Now, we have spoken a lot about the failures of the government's economic decision-making, but it's easy to criticise from the sidelines. So what are some better alternatives? The government is in a difficult position, no doubt about it. But the first thing you learn about emergency situations is that you've got to help yourself before you can help anybody else. The best thing for the British government to do right now would be to get the value of their currency back up and deal with inflation. Recessions are bad, but they can be managed. We've already explored a lot of this in our video on the recession that we need to have. The UK has a lot of resilient industries. No doubt they would suffer during a recession, but they will suffer a lot more if double-digit inflation persists. If the government was to enact contractionary fiscal policy, as in taxing more and spending less in conjunction with the Bank of England's own contractionary monetary policy, raising interest rates and taking cash out of circulation, it would send a very strong message to the global economy while simultaneously increasing the value of the pound. If people and businesses need more pounds to pay their taxes and make their interest payments, the demand for those pounds would rise. If the Bank of England was simultaneously allowed to start removing cash from circulation again, the supply would fall. This would hurt local industry and it would increase unemployment. But that's the bit of medicine the economy needs right now. If the pound regained its value, it would in the short term counteract a lot of the economic pain inflicted by these measures because imported food, energy and other essentials would be cheaper to purchase with a stronger currency. At the moment, the government is pushing policies to stimulate growth in the economy at the expense of inflation, while the central bank is pushing policies to curb inflation at the expense of growth in the economy. It's counterproductive and it's only likely to continue to result in low growth and high inflation. Now here is a first. We have already put the UK on the Economics Explained National Leaderboard and it did pretty well, getting an average score of 7.2 out of 10. 
But now, almost a year later, I think it's worth going back to these scores to see what has changed. If you want to play along, why don't you make a prediction as to whether this score is going to be better or worse? Starting as always with size. The UK has actually reported high GDP figures in 2021, and the country is currently expected by the World Bank to maintain those figures in 2022, so it gets a 9 out of 10. GDP per capita has also improved slightly, with the average UK resident producing just under $50,000 worth of value every year. It gets a 7 out of 10. Stability and confidence is obviously the most subjective measure on this list. The UK used to be the go-to destination to keep money safe, but now off the back of actions taken over the past two months, people will seriously need to reconsider legislative and foreign exchange risk when doing business in the country. Remember, it's no good making fantastic investments in a place like the UK if currency devaluation wipes out those gains or the government decides that businesses can no longer charge market prices for its products. The UK now gets a 7 out of 10. Growth over the past decade in the UK has been flat, and with new economic challenges, it's likely to remain flat. Remarkably, it hasn't started going backwards apart from the sharp downturn during early pandemic lockdowns, but it still only gets a 3 out of 10. Finally, industry. Financial services are one of the UK's biggest industries and also one of their biggest exports. The faltering pound, in conjunction with continued questions about what a post-Brexit UK will look like in the long term, means that this industry and other services like it are going to struggle. It's a highly advanced economy with a lot of talent and capital, so it's not going anywhere, but it's not what it once was. It gets an 8 out of 10. Altogether, that now gives the UK an average score of 6.8 out of 10, which moves it from here to here on the leaderboard which I'm sure will make India very happy, but it also goes to show that these problems are not as big as people are making it out to be. And the UK is likely to keep soldiering on as they always do. Thanks for watching, mate. Bye. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.